Merry Christmas. It's fantastic to be with you. If, if you're a guest from out of town or just first time to narrate, welcome to you. It's, it's an honor that you would uh, choose to worship with us here on Christmas Eve. And for those of you that this is your church, uh, Merry Christmas to you as well. It's it's absolute honor to, to worship with you as well. I, I, it probably doesn't even need to be said, but I, every year, like Christmas Eve for me is the, the most humbling, most honoring uh, day in my year because it's just... It's fantastic that you would choose to celebrate Christmas with us and we would get to with you, so, so thanks. And for those of you that this is your church, um, I hope there's a sense of ownership you feel in this, uh, whether those are your kids or your you know, spouses in the band or whatever, but not only that, just I, I hope that uh, you know, what you do throughout the year and the ways that you serve and creating the, the culture that you've created around here, I hope you feel a real heightened sense of ownership in the way that we get to serve our community uh, this morning. So. Merry Christmas, and it's fantastic being in the church with a bunch of people who define themselves by what they give, you know? So good job. Uh, this morning, there's this really just one idea that I'd like to explore with you. It's, it's for many of you, not going to be a new idea. It'll be something you've probably heard before, and yet for those of you that have heard it, I think you'll quickly recognize that this is the type of idea that, that we don't get to hear once and then nail it forevermore, forevermore. It's one of those ideas that, that if you've wrestled with it before, I think you'll be thankful for the reminder because uh, th- this is the type of idea we have to revisit over and over and over again. And, and if for you it is a new idea, my own personal experience, my own belief in the conversations that I have would say that this is right at the, at the crux of everything that we, we have to engage in if we're going to uh, derive the, the most out of life that God would have us pull from life. The other thing is, I think at first glance, and maybe already you're going, uh, Christmas, Jesus, manger, uh, I think at first glance it won't strike you as a particularly Christmas theme. Though part of my goal this morning is to demonstrate that not only is it a part of the Christmas theme, that it's central to the characters of, of the first Christmas, and that really there's lots of ways we can honor Jesus on Christmas, but I think stepping into this idea might be one of the most Christmas things uh, we, we can do. So the idea is simply this, that, that when presented with an opportunity, Mary found the courage to say yes. That as Erwin McManus says quite eloquently, that, that, that when presented with a divine moment, Mary had the internal makeup to, to seize that moment, to seize that opportunity. That, that when presented with this, this chance, uh, she pushed through the fear and through the danger and through the unknown, and she, she embraced the opportunity. And based upon my own 35 years of experience with fear and based upon the, the, the lives that I watch you live and the conversations that we have, what, what, where that assures me, where that gives me encouragement is to know that like Mary wasn't courageous because of because uh, of her DNA. She, she wasn't courageous because she was born that way and some of us are and others aren't, but that she had done the work. Like she had done the work to become the kinds of person who, who when opportunity came her way and it was scary, she had what it takes to say yes. And so the idea that I'd like to explore this morning, and it's not going to take us all that long, is, is simply this, like what, what are we doing to become the kinds of people that actually seize the moments that come our way? To say yes to the fearful moments, to, to capture them. Uh, there, there's a guy... Mark Stevens, heard of that guy? Kind of a vague name. Mark Stevens is, is famously known, well, that's dumb because you didn't know his name, but, but he's known in some circles as Apple's 12th employee. Mark Stevens was hired on by Apple in 1977. And as Apple's 12th employee, he, he was with the company when they were transitioning from a garage to an actual office space. And the Steves, when they first hired Mark, uh, they pulled him aside and they had an idea and they weren't sure if Mark would be up for it or not because, see, part of the reality of, of Apple at this time was they had lots of ideas and lots of hopes and lots of ambitions, but they didn't have a lot of money. Some of you are going, that sounds like my spouse. Yeah, that, 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 that was Apple's reality. 
And so Mark, uh, they pulled Mark aside, and what they tried to sell Mark was this. uh, Don't make us pay you an hourly wage. Instead, let us pay you in stock options. So in 1977, this guy, Mark, uh, was presented with this opportunity to, to not take home a paycheck, but instead to take home stock from a company called Apple. But Mark stood his ground, and he insisted instead upon $6 an hour. Now, nobody here needs me to tell you this, but I'm going to say it. Had Mark taken the stock instead, he, he would have more value than many countries in the world. He would be, as one of my friends calls it, a gazillionaire more money than what he knew what to do with. And not to suggest that that's necessarily the goal of life, but nonetheless, Mark actually uses himself as an example in a book called One Question to point out the fact that every once in a while, a handful of times in life, an opportunity comes our way, and it's a scary opportunity, it's a foreign opportunity, but what we do with that opportunity will determine the rest of our path. Mark points out that that, that we, we only get a handful of them, five, maybe ten of them, and what we do with them really, really does matter. And you know, you know this. Like, like show, show us a successful business person, and quickly what we're going to learn is someone who didn't necessarily have ideas other people didn't have. Quickly we're going to learn someone who, who didn't have opportunities other people didn't have. They just simply said yes. They, they seized it. They risked it. They, they stepped into the unknown. They wondered if they could pay their mortgage. I, I don't know what the risk was, but that's what makes successful business people successful business people. Show me a marriage that you envy. And I guarantee what you'll show me is a couple who when they come across those moments, they don't retreat, they don't run away, they step into them. They get the counseling, they have the conversation, they work through the conflict, they they do whatever it is. Show me a person whose spiritual life you envy, and I guarantee that there were moments in their life where everything in them wanted to go left, but they found the faith to go right. Everything in them wanted to retreat, and instead, they went forward. Now, to be fair to what we're going to talk about this morning, because I, I recognize, like, I do what you do um, when I listen to a message like this. Like, I instantly run to the side of the devil's advocate, and I criticize it from that angle, because that's who we are, right? Like, that's, that's our affinity. So let me just kind of speak to the tension here. Like, I recognize that when we're talking about a topic like this, there's something that has to be held in tension with the idea of saying yes to the opportunity. And the thing that we have to hold in tension is, not every opportunity is a good opportunity. Not every idea is a good idea. Not, not everything that looks like a God thing and smells like a God thing and is confirmed by others to be a God thing is, in fact, a God thing. But nonetheless, having acknowledged that, can't we all already, whether you're 13 years old or 63 years old, can't can't you already look back and see that there were a handful of moments and whether or not you seized them has everything to do with the shape and the scope of your life today? This was a terrifying reality that was, I was forced to kind of revisit this last spring or this last fall, excuse me. As I was wrestling with the, the stories of Mary and thinking about Christmas Eve and what thread to pull on, I, I had my own moment where, so I have a friend who leads a church in another town, and, and he's doing some really fascinating work uh, within the church and within the leadership sector of the church with, with a guy who's a psychologist and then another gal who's a sociologist. And they're these clinical people who, who, are, who are, you know, PhDs in their field, and yet they're also these Christ-following people. So my friend has been bringing them into their church and, and using them in myriad ways, and so I was intrigued by that and had some ideas with relationship to Helena and Narrate. And so I asked my friend, like, hey, could I, could I come to, to your town next time that he's there, and could I meet with them? And so he he said yes graciously, and so the staff and I piled into this particular town, and I had my meeting with them, and I think I had a two-hour time block with them, and we got about an hour and 45 minutes into it, and, and she, uh, the, the, the sociologist, she kind of pushed away from the table, and she said, hey, I think you guys need to talk uh, personally now. Like, 
I know I'm messed up. I didn't know it was that obvious. Like, I thought I could pull off a two-hour meeting without someone going like, you're screwed up. Like, get out of here. We need to do some therapy. So here was me and my new friend sitting in this room together, and he said, so what do you want to talk about? And I said, uh, well, and, and, and for the first time in my 35 years, I talked to a psychologist about my anxiety. I, I've, I've been aware more and more that I've dealt with this forever, and so I just kind of started to go like, I, I think I'm realizing that I deal with anxiety, and you all who are here every weekend going, yes, you do. Like, <laughs> it's kind of an issue. So, so I started kind of spilling it out there, and he cut me off pretty quickly. And he said, Adam, let me guess. When you deal with anxiety, uh, is this the way you cope? And for him, cope is a bad word. He said, is the way that you cope, you retreat. Is the way that you cope of whatever it is that causes you anxiety, you go the other direction and you avoid that forever. And I said, yes. And he said, Adam, about 70% of Americans deal with anxiety and I'm here to tell you as a clinical psychologist, like he didn't say that, like that would be kind of like, look at my plaque. But that's really the way I received it. He said, what I'm here to tell you is, is you cannot get healthy. You cannot get well from your anxiety from that posture. He said, I'm here's the only way to get well is the next time you, the next time you have it, you don't walk backwards, you walk forward. In fact, here was the homework he gave me. College was hard, grad school was hard, high school was hard, or, um, like, but this was the hardest homework I've ever given. He said, Adam, here, here, here's the prayer I want you to start every day with from now on. Jesus, uh, put me in situations that cause anxiety. Like, okay, check out, is there a book I could read or something? Like, this is not working. He said, you, you just pray, like, Lord, you put me in situations where I feel anxiety, and then Adam, when you're in them, here's your questions. What am I feeling and why am I feeling it? What am I feeling and why am I feeling it? What am I feeling and why am I feeling it? And his conviction as a theologian and a pastor and a psychologist is Jesus will then lead you through the stuff that you need to work on. That's not to say that you don't have to pull in outside help when you identify things, but he'll lead you through that. So, I, not every day, but a couple times a month, maybe. I, initially, it was every day. I was kind of leaning into this. I was serious about it in a way I haven't been in a while. And, and what happened to me was crazy. W- within just a few weeks, I got an email from a gal who lives in New York City who used to live in Billings. I've never met her. My wife has never met her. We have some friends in Billings who are mutual friends. Uh, and she emailed me, and she put an opportunity in front of me that, that was insane. Now, what, what the email said, and it'll take me more words to explain, was she was explaining that there's these guys, uh, Dr. Henry Cloud and Dr. Don- John Townsend. Some of you have heard me reference them before. You know, they're, in my opinion, in many people's opinion, mine doesn't really matter, the, the best Christian psychologists in the whole world. They're doing crazy work, making lots of Christians mad because they're acknowledging the science of psychology, but helping lots and lots of people. Well, what they're doing now is they've created these intensives three or four times a year, and they're in California, and they invite just a small group of like 30 or so leaders to these events, and they show up, and they spend a week in California, and they just like unzip themselves and put it out there, and then they, with their clinical experience, kind of help put it all back together. She was emailing me saying, Adam, have you heard of them? Yeah, I've heard of them. You know about these? Yeah, I know about them. And they're atrocious. They're like really, really expensive. She said, I want to send you. I'm writing the check. You're going. I was like, wait, wait a minute. Like, you're going to fly to California by yourself. And so, like, I can't take my spouse. No, no spouses. Could I get my friend to go? Yeah, you could try, but that'd be pathetic of you. Like, it's just you. <laughs> and the reality is, for me, traveling to California by myself for a week, like, puts my anxiety at fever pitch. And some of you are going, you're such a wuss. I'm never coming back here again. It's just, <laughs> just telling you. My point is simply this, like, the, the simple passages that we're going to look at this morning, if had I not seen what I saw in Mary's life prior to that, I just simply wouldn't have seen that opportunity the same. I haven't gone yet. Talk is cheap. 
you, some, some of you may be coming to L.A. in a couple in a month and getting me out of a white padded room. We'll, we'll talk more about that. But, but I just wouldn't have seen it the same. Because what I understand is that life, every once in a while, every, every little bit of time, God, God gives you a chance. He gives you an opportunity. And whether or not you seize it says a lot. See, my habit prior to that was probably a lot like yours. I prayed prayers that sounded like this. God, what's your will? Show me your will. Show me your will. Show me your will. And what I'm realizing is God doesn't work that way. He doesn't like go, here's the map, and here's you at 20, and here's you at 30, and here's you at 40, and here's you at 50. And, like, he, he doesn't do that. What, what he does is he says, hey, you're at a moment, and everything in you wants to go left. I'm going to ask you to go right. You're at this moment, and everything in you wants to go backwards. I'm going to ask you to go forward. Like if you've never read the Gospel of Matthew, you, sh- you should read it. It's actually good reading. And, and one of the hilarious things is us Christians, we make fun of the disciples all the time because they like, didn't have a clue what they got themselves into. And sometimes we wonder, like, why did Jesus pick them? Because they didn't really get who he was and what he was about until after he rose from the dead. I think part of the answer to that is they were people. And there were men and there were women among his crew. They were people who were willing to walk into the unknown. And Jesus would say sometimes crazy things. And they'd go, okay, I'll go right. It doesn't make sense, but, 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 but I'll go right. And it pieced together later. See, the, the, the people we admire, like stop and think of the leaders you admire. Stop and think of the Bible characters you admire. Stop and think of whether they're national or international, whether they're local to, to this century or from a couple thousand years ago. What, what you'll see is they weren't unique in the sense that they had extraordinary opportunity that nobody else had. They, they, most of them, they weren't unique in terms of what life gave them. They weren't lucky, as some people would say. Oftentimes, what separates the people we so admire, the leaders that have accomplished so much, and those who haven't, the people who have great marriages and those who don't, is simply they said yes to an opportunity that everybody else said no to. Like, let's just, let's just take David. David, the king of Israel, like, even if you don't read the Bible, like, you can picture a big, tall, hairy Goliath guy. He kills Goliath, right? But think of this, like David killed Goliath and that was a catalyst to everything God would use him for. But long before David killed Goliath, God invited Saul to kill Goliath. In fact, it was his rightful thing to do. He was the king of Israel and God put Saul in a position where Goliath mocked Israel and mocked Saul and it was Saul's place to kill Goliath. And Saul said, no, eh, not going to do that. And so Saul, he extended the opportunity to his entire army Guys, any of you, what was it? Like, you can have my daughter in marriage, and the girls are going, that's creepy. It is creepy. It's a different time. But, but like, guys, anybody want to kill Goliath? Like, storehouses opened up for you. They're like, nope, nope, we're out. David shows up with, like, a packet of cheese and an email that he's delivering. And they're like, who, who, who's this guy? Oh, it's Goliath. He mocks God every day. Oh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll deal with him. David just said yes to an opportunity that everybody else said no to. So let me ask you this. What is unbridled fear doing to your life? Like, like, like what is the inability to, to live despite your fears, what is it doing to you? What opportunities is it causing you to miss? Like, why aren't you able to seize the moment? And what role does your fear and anxiety play in all that? I heard a guy say recently, we have absolutely no control over how we die we have all kinds of control over how we live. Like that's the crux of it, isn't it? And yet we fear the ways we're going to die. So what's fascinating to me and what I found myself asking in preparation for this weekend is, I wonder if we can appreciate that for Mary and Joseph, 
Some of you are going, Adam, Bible, like Christmas Eve, come on, come back. Um, for Mary and Joseph, I wonder if we can appreciate that what they did was said yes to an opportunity that was just that. It was an opportunity. Like Joseph, Joseph didn't have to be the father of the Messiah. And, and every man who's a father knows that. And every person who's had a father walk out on them knows that all the more. Joseph, could he could have moved somewhere else. He could have denied it. He could have called Mary crazy because he would have had a really good case. He could have done any number of things to, to, to disavow himself of the, of the responsibilities of being the... He, he didn't have to say yes to that. And Mary, now please, this is not intended to be a political social comment at all, but every woman in this room knows Mary didn't have to give birth to that baby. She had a lot of options. They said yes. Check this out in Luke 2. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. You know what happened to girls who lived in the religious northern Galilee, who, who, who showed up pregnant without a husband at 12 or 13 years old? You know what happened to them? I suspect it would look a lot like what would happen to a 12 or 13-year-old girl who showed up at a Christian school today pregnant, or any school for that matter. I wonder sometimes, like, is the reason we don't hear about her parents because there was incredible social cost to, to them too? Did they separate themselves from her because of that? Like, like she, she, she was presented with this opportunity, and she had options. And the cost for her was incredible shame, ridicule, in a culture where religion was everything, she'd be excommunicated, and all likelihood if she was going to live her life, she was going to be a prostitute, not because she was promiscuous, but because it was the only means of making a living that she had. And she was engaged. Like, have you ever considered that she had to make the decision to say yes without knowing what Joseph was going to do? She didn't get to go like, okay, let me huddle up with Joseph and we'll tell you what our answer is. She, she, I, I know it's, it's, it's false to assume that every girl grows up dreaming of her wedding day, but she was engaged, and I'm going to assume she did. That was on the chopping block. She had to give up that dream. The, the text continues and says, uh, the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Her reputation was on the line. She would go to her grave, literally considered a laughing stock of her community. To her death, women said things when they walked by like, eh, she's, she's a slut. Like she said she gave birth to the Messiah. Really, she had a rendezvous that she didn't want to talk openly about, and she spiritualized it. To her death, she had to deal with this. Stakes are high. In verse uh, 34, it says, how will this be? Mary asked the, or Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin. Reasonable question, right? How will this be? The angel said, the Holy Spirit will come on you. Like, just don't just like glaze over these like we do because we've heard them so many times, but imagine what this looks like. The Holy Spirit will come on you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born called, will be called the Son of God. Psychologists tell us that we are naturally afraid of that with which we lack familiarity. We could debate what, what's familiar and what's not. We can't debate that your natural, the old part of your brain, its natural response to, to unfamiliar things is fear, flight. It kept, keeps, keeps you alive at times. Let me ask you this. What does it look like for the power of the Most High to come upon you and the Holy Spirit to overshadow you? Like, can I just give you permission to kind of go there even though it feels like you don't have permission to go there, it feels sacrilegious to go there, but like, what does that look like? What does it feel like? I mean, seriously, like, would she know when it happened? 
There's all kinds of questions. My point is simply this. Mary had, a, had no clue. It was entirely unfamiliar. And her physical, biological response, her initial response, just like yours would be. It says Mary was, in verse 29, Mary was greatly troubled at his words. Troubled that the angel was showing up? I'd be troubled. Troubled at the invitation? I'd have to think so. See, her response was like, duh. But here, here's where Mary uh, separates herself from the rest. Pope Benedict wrote this brilliant commentary on the nativity narratives, which are technically the narratives we're reading. And in there, he references a guy named Bernard of Clairvaux. So eloquent. I've been advocating that we start calling Caleb, Caleb of Helena. Anyway, Bernard of Clairvaux wrote a homily on this over a thousand years ago. And what Bernard said is at the moment when the angel said to, Gabe, said to Mary, at the moment Gabriel said to Mary, you're going to give birth, all of heaven and earth went silent. That they were on the edge of their seat. That they were leaning forward and they were waiting to hear what will be her answer. See, Bernard was leaning into something that I think is central to the text, and that is that God's will almost always, not always, almost always depends upon the obedience of people. That, that, that what he's recognizing is God wanted to do something miraculous, something that 2,000 years later we all benefit from. But it required first a yes, and everybody leaned in. And finally Mary said, what I can't say nearly as well as Wiley did, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Yes, I'll do it. See, see, courage seizes opportunity. Fear retreats from it. But with Mary, we're not talking about someone who retreated. We're talking about someone who leaned in, who went right when everything in her wanted to go left. Think of it this way. Who was the first person to have the idea to put a computer on every desk? We don't know. What we know is who did it. A guy named Bill Gates. And he made a little bit of money doing so. If, you, if you've followed world history, you know that in England... I didn't mean that to be patronizing. Sorry, that's not like... Mr. Highbrow there, if you followed world history. Uh, but, but, but seriously, like if you followed European history and the history of the slave trade, what you know is England didn't have a civil war. The British Empire didn't have a civil war. They handled it through a diplomatic channel. Let me ask you this. Who was the first person to have the idea of eliminating slavery from the English Empire? We don't know. The only thing we know is who did it. A guy named William Wilberforce. Now this gets dangerous and don't take it too far, but who was the first woman offered the opportunity to, to usher into the world the Messiah. I would advocate we don't know. We don't have a clue. All we know is who did it. The person who said yes. See, on Christmas Eve, we gather and we celebrate the birth of the Messiah because of God's grace, absolutely. But because some human said yes. On Christmas, we celebrate that Jesus came, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, that because of him, like we're not gathering, we're not slicing the throats of lambs, and we're not doing that whole deal. Jesus would be the final, ultimate sacrifice. And yes, that has everything to do with God's grace. And yes, it has everything to do with the participating will of people. Listen, I know God, God, if God wants to talk to you through a donkey, he can, but he doesn't often work that way. 
He often stands by and waits for someone who will say yes. And what every leader knows in this room, what every person who aspires to lead, what every person who admires leadership knows is that if you stand at the top of the hill long enough and just contemplate your good ideas and the neat opportunities, eventually they're going to go away because someone's going to charge down the hill and they're going to take the opportunity that you're just watching. See, greatness, leadership, people who influence, people who live to their fullest, they're not people with ideas. And to me, that's a freeing thing. Guess what? You don't have to be the most creative person. The the, the people that we celebrate, the people whose lives we admire, the people who honor God with their very existence, they're they're not the most creative. They're just simply the ones who say yes. Because what we all know is the window of opportunity eventually closes. Someone else will seize it. God will take it away. The Bible talks about this with the hardening of your heart. You know what? If you're inspired to work on your marriage, you won't always feel that way. If you're inspired to to get professional help in in some psychology type of realm, you won't always feel that way. If you're inspired to get involved with your church or get out of debt or whatever, go back to school, you won't always feel that way. The window of opportunity closes. So let me ask you this. What is fear costing you? What is the inability to bridle your fear? And not wait until you don't feel fear, but push through it. What, what, what is that costing you? See, there, there are lots of ways that we could, we could honor Jesus on Christmas. And one is we could gather and we could all sing songs and we could just affirm that we believe. I argue that a better way, and I don't like to use that word, but a better way is to gather and say what the first disciples said to Jesus. Jesus, we believe. Help us with our unbelief. Like we want to live this way. Give us the wisdom to know when those opportunities are coming our way. Maybe you've never before made a decision to follow Jesus. I can't think of a better time to start than now. To just say to Jesus, Jesus, I want to follow you. Guide me in that path. If you would like to engage further with Narrate Church, you can find contact information online. www.narratechurch.org We would love to hear from you.